Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. Well, good morning. Uh, great to be with you. Uh, so after this past week, just hit me that in light of our series topic and what's going on, that we as a body ought to be praying for our country and its leaders together in here. And so some way, shape, or form each Sunday between now at least and um, the election, we'll be, we'll be praying for that. So Timothy writing to the church well, Paul, writing to Timothy, pastor of a church in Ephesus, says to him, hey, first thing on your minds ought to be prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings for all people, uh, but, it's, but, but for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, he says, and it's pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So, why don't you uh, bow with me, would you? Um, Father, we, we want to do exactly what Timothy is told to do. We want to lift up our country and our leaders uh, who are, uh, Lord, the decisions that they make affect this country and the world. And right now, There doesn't seem to be any kind of unity, not the kind that's necessary to bring real solutions uh, to our country. So we lift up our leaders. You say the king's heart is in your hand. We ask that you guide them, give them wisdom, draw them to yourself. We know your ultimate goal and plan is that all people come to know you. Timothy says, your desire is that everyone, including the, the leaders in the world, come to know you, and that's our prayer. And only you can do that, Father. We admit that you are sovereign and that you have a plan to redeem the world, and that plan will not be thwarted by anyone or anything. And we trust in you completely to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you're a guest with us, we're in the third part of a series called The People of God. And we are looking at First Peter, who uh, is writing to Christians, or Peter's writing to Christians who are living in a very godless society, anti-God world, reminding them that their identity is in God and with his people. Because Peter knows it's very difficult to be estranged, to feel on the outs in any way. But to lose sort of your social uh, or maybe national identification, which is so basic to us, as humans, uh, and I think especially true of Christians in America, this is hard because we have benefited from the influence and the acceptance of Christianity within our culture, and as a result, uh, patriotic Inferences, references, and sentiments have blended, become part of our national and spiritual consciousness. And we find it very, very difficult to separate our nationalism and our Christianity. And so Peter's point is that we, the church, the people of God, are not defined by any social or political or national entity. So Peter is going to make it 
clear that we are not to confuse our faith with a cultural identity, an external cultural identity. Uh, Miroslav Volf, who's a Croatian theologian, he's from, he teaches at Fuller. He writes this. The universality of God entails transcendence with respect to any given culture. In other words, rise above any culture. Christians can never be, first of all, Asians or Americans or Croatians, Russians or Tutsis, and then Christians. At the very core of Christian identity lies an all-encompassing change of loyalty from a given culture with its gods to the God of all cultures. A response to a call from that God entails rearrangement of a whole network of allegiances. Departure is part and parcel of Christian identity. Now, the reason Peter is trying to help these believers with that is because you will be shaped in conscious and subconscious ways by how you see yourself and what you connect yourself to and where you find or get your identity. And as America gets farther and farther away from this Christian way, it reveals that we are ill-prepared for the rejection of our values and lifestyle and beliefs. And we're trying to save a nation's morality politically. Somehow, as I've said before, with a sense that if you lose America, you lose Christianity. And Peter is trying to say, you do not need to bear the weight of that. You don't need to bear the weight of any other external identity of any sort once you are in Christ. So I'm arguing that America is not Christian in the way the Bible understands Christianity. And to believe that, or to relate to it as though it is, can actually diminish who, we, who our true Christian identity is to be and weaken our ability to be salt and light in the world. That's what I'm arguing. I'm really less interested in whether you believe America has ever been Christian or not. Don't care. Because I feel like that's what a lot of you are worried about. Less worried than about the things that ought to be worried about for us as a church. And what's happening is it's forcing us into some cultural war. And we are engaging in these political tactics and dynamics that the world uses. And they're shaping us more than the spiritual dynamics of being in Christ. And it seems that we are more concerned about the nation being, being Christian than Christians being Christian. If you watched the debate, which I did, all of it, every minute, because of this series, I don't know that I would have lasted otherwise. It was hard to take and what you saw there was a microcosm of our whole country. It's anger, angry, bitter, demeaning, polarizing. It's really hard to reach solutions that people really desperately need when that's the case. So we become intolerant. That's a picture not of just the country, Hillside. That's a lot of Christians. That's how they, intolerant, belligerent, can't handle it if somebody doesn't see things the way they see them. 
win at all costs. And so our politics are creating enemies out of people that God wants us to reach. And so, as I said last week, we've got to be offensive and attractive. I read something this week that really stuck out at me because of my, I love coaches, especially. I love teachers, the role that they play in our youth, on the front lines, for those who are believers and are doing their best to to be attractive to Christ about you know, to the world. Um, So this football coach at Illinois State, maybe you read this, Illinois State University was was fired from his job. Somebody, I won't give you all the details because that's not the important part, but Black Lives Matter was, was everywhere in the locker rooms and someone on the team, we don't know who it was, had taken one of these signs that Black Lives Matter and put it on this coach's door, his office door. And uh, he left it there for a little while, but then thought about it and said, I'm going to take that down, and then thought, well, what I ought to do and what I did and what he did do is make a sign that say, all lives matter to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and put it on the door. And he was obviously getting you know, praise from a certain segment of Christianity for for standing up for what he believes. And I want to tell you, all he did was use the same tactic that was used on him. Now he has no platform to show that Christ cares about people. And there's a time for you to express your opinion and ideology. I got to tell you, very few people care about it. You ought to know that. But for that announcement to do exactly what was done to him, when the way you communicate that God loves people is not through signs. It's through real life, baby. Get in that locker room and love people. Get in that locker room and love people wherever they are. And not try to change their minds politically. It was a miss. That's what I'm talking about. We're happy to create enemies as long as we get our point across. Not really caring about souls. We desperately, Hillside, need Peter's help. For who we are and how how to live and affect people in this world. A theology, it gives us a, 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 a... an identity, and a way to engage this world. And we saw last week that Peter begins understanding our identity, and we have to tease out this whole idea, and it's, it, it's, it's that we are exiles. Remember what he says? He starts the book out, we are chosen exiles in dispersion, scattered all over the place, homeless, basically. Chosen exiles. Last week we looked at that. The one celebrates your relationship with God. The fact that we are chosen by God gives us our vertical identity. And as a result of what God has done for us, we are now exiles to the world. That's our horizontal relationship wherever we're at. No place is home for a believer. We are exiles. And remember, he closes the book with that incredible uh, picture of describing Rome where he's at as Babylon. Babylon is where Israel went into exile. He's describing the church. That's her. She is in Babylon. This is an incredibly powerful figure to reemphasize the idea at the beginning and the end of the book that we are exiles. That's how we live our lives in between. By virtue of being related to God, we are exiles, wherever you put us. So we have to tease out what it means to be an exile. 
Uh, how are we supposed to think of ourselves? How are we supposed to, to, to live like that? Well, you think to yourself, all right, Peter, you're going to start into this and you're going to help us with this new identity of an exile? How are you going to do that? Wonder what you're going to say first after this. And Peter, uh, he says right off the bat, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Let me take you right back to your beginning. Let me take you to, right back to your natural, ultimate identity and relationship. You are born to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Profound couple of verses. So Peter is going to look at us exiles struggling to get along in a society that no longer believes what we believe. And he's going to start right at the very beginning with this idea of new birth. And by the way, this is a really interesting word Peter uses here, this born again. It's not used anywhere else in the Old Testament or New. Peter uses it twice here and in, uh, a little later in, in the chapter to describe people born again. It's as if Peter... Uh, is going to get down to the, the root, the basic essence of your existence starts with the fact that you have been born again, infused with a supernatural life in you. That creates the possibilities of spiritual development because what God has done in you, he can now grow you into something. That's why in chapter two, we looked at a couple weeks ago where Peter looks at us literally in chapter two and says, you're like infants. You're supposed to be like infants, longing for, any, for, for the milk that'll grow you, grow you. Because when, I've, when I am put this spiritual life in you, I expect it to grow. It will grow. Uh, It's impossible for that growth to occur without the supernatural life giving it the ability to do that. That's why one commentator says a new convert is like a a newborn child. You, you, You have this little bundle of life in your hand and it's like this small, tiny thing, but you know when you look at it, the potential for its development in life are there. I haven't had a baby in my life in a long time, but I have a grandchild who lives with us. It's been almost, almost six months, five and a half months. And I see this baby every day and I see with, as the weeks go on and the month, the development. And, uh, and it's just astounding, the transformation. I have three nieces, because now the grandkids are all girls now. Two, three nieces that are girls. And I see the other ones just periodically, and when I do, I can see they're growing. They're, you know, getting chunky, uh, walking, crawling, saying things. And I look at this little one that I'm holding, I call her Peanut, because she's so tiny. And I think, oh my gosh, I think about her, and I go, Wow. I picture her when she's going to be three, what she'll be like, what she'll be when she's 20. We got trouble. We got trouble coming in the Chiafalo family. Big trouble. But you can see it. You look at her and you can't help but picture the development and growth that's coming because it's so powerful in them. That's what Peter's saying. When God's supernatural life comes inside of you, oh, watch out. The potential for your development is overwhelming in where you're going to go spiritually. And Peter says, so what are we born to? What, 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 what do we got to deal with here? He says, it's a living hope. You are born again to a living hope. It's living because it's attached to someone who has risen from the dead. It's far better than being attached to a dead person, don't you agree? It's a living hope. It's not dead. It's not futile. It's not temporary. It's real. And just by the word hope, it, it, it suggests ultimate. 
Not something you have now, but something you know and expect is coming. So the resurrection has literally achieved something that's impossible in the world because everything else in the world is going to die. It's going to fade out. And because it's grounded in a living person, we have hope. This is great news for a group of people who are losing their place in a society. Listen, life by itself is despairing. And take it by, taken by itself, it's overwhelming. It's amazing we get through days. It's amazing we get through weeks. It's amazing we get through years and, and even half a century. And along the way, you'll put your hope in something. Because you can't help it. Meaning, purpose, security, and significance, they're just, we're driven by those things. And so if you don't have something to put your hope in, you'll attach it to anything. That's why Dallas Willard's, one of my, you know, very memorable lines from his book is, meaning is not a luxury for human beings, it's a necessity. We can't help it. We're teleological beings. We need something out in front of us. Peter says, when you get infused with this new life, you get a living hope that cannot die. It is eternal. And so Peter says, listen, if I can change your hope, if your hope can be changed, if you can change someone's hope, you literally can change everything about them. The the days that they wake up with a hope like this out in front of them changes, it changes everything. The way they do life, the way they see life, the the way they interact, the way they do everything is changed. So he says, you have that. You don't need to grab onto it anywhere else. But you don't only have that. Let me give it to you another way, Peter says. I want to talk about something even more concrete, in case hope is just a little too abstract for you. Let me talk to you about an inheritance. And any Jewish person would have gotten this. Remember, there's all kind of uh, Old Testament imagery in 1 Peter. It's flooded with Old Testament. We're going to talk more about that in the weeks to come. But for right now, you got Israel on the mind in Peter's words. He uses chosen, diaspora, exiles. These were all terms used of Israel. And now he's going to talk about an inheritance, which if you were Jewish, you would have thought of the land. You would have thought of Canaan land because that was the land that was promised us. That's where God was taking us. That's where we wanted to go. So it invites us to think about the land, which was so valuable to the people. It was, it was like what, it's not unlike what we're experiencing today. The value of a certain land, a geography, a place, a country, But here's the thing, it kept getting ripped from Israel. Every time you turn around, there was a new nation. I counted six, easy, in just a brief history to Rome, that ravaged that land all the time and took it from them and dragged them into some exile. It's like really hard to grab, (laughs) to get an identity out of that geographical place on this earth when it kept getting ripped from you. And now, who are we going to be now? Peter says, not this inheritance. I know how attached you can get to a piece of land. I know how attached you can get to a country. I know how attached you can get to a culture. Those in, that, that, that will be taken. I'm talking about an inheritance that's spiritual. I'm talking about an inheritance that's imperishable, that's undefiled, that's unfading. This is really beautiful what Peter describes here. And it's kept for you. In other words, you cannot lose it. Your identity is in something that cannot be lost, cannot be taken from you. And it's in heaven. It's not here. 
Don't put it in anything here. It's literally guarded, it's the word. And Peter uses these three words here. They all in Greek end or begin with an A, so they have this three alpha primitive words. Won't give them to you because it won't, it won't matter if you hear them. So what I've done is I've tried to, in English, create what Peter is trying to create because he doesn't just want to want you to read it. He wants you to hear it. He wants you to hear the sound of a hope that's not in this world. And it is as if he had written it like this, where the beginnings are all the same, so that you hear that sound, untouched by death, that's imperishable, unstained by evil, unimpaired by time. That is what you have in Christ. Peter says, I want you to hear it. And then verse five. This thing that you have, God's power guards it through faith. This is an important phrase. We've got to come back to that, and we will next week. For a salvation, remember salvation in Peter is always future, ready to be revealed at the last time. In other words, we've been saved, that's born again. But we've been born to something that has a future piece to it that is not here. It's out there. It's beyond this world. That's our hope. Peter knows he's talking to a group of people that sit in, in a room that are just like that feel just like we do. You take our national identity, you take your cultural identity, you take a social identity and estrange us, that's painful. That would hurt anyone. It'll make you feel helpless. It'll make you feel hopeless. It'll make you feel homeless. This is what exiles feel like, Peter is saying. This is what exiles feel like. And so Peter is saying, society may not take you in. They may not accept you. And you will, by virtue of your faith, Never, ever feel at home anywhere. That's what Peter is trying to say. You will never feel at home anywhere because of this spiritual life that's been infused into you and this hope that you have and this inheritance that awaits you that isn't here. And so you're always heading toward it. You're not just an exile, you're a pilgrim, you're a sojourner. You're not home you're heading home. So you can never feel fully home anywhere. Nobody likes to feel out of place like you don't belong. That's one of the worst feelings in the world. You know what I did when I got to this point it was actually the week before, because this talk was going to be supposed to be part of last week. The week before, I actually made a list of everything that in my life from as early as I can remember as a kid that I wanted to be a part of. It's an incredible little exercise. And you will find how restless you've been all your life when you literally jot down everything you wanted to be a part of all your life. I want to be a part of that. I want to be seen as that. I want to connect to that. I want that. I want to be at that place. I want to be with those people. I want to be in that room. I want to be there. Because it's a longing in all of our hearts. And Peter's trying to say, some people will try to find it in their country, and you can't find it there. You can't ultimately find it anywhere. There's no home here. You can't find it anywhere. If you're connected to God, he's given you something, and he's prepared a home for you that you'll never find here. But here's the thing. In America, it's really easy, follow me now, to feel at home. Really at home. It's for so long accommodated a Christian way of life 
that we've been able to find some measure of security, some measure of significance, uh, some measure of purpose and meaning. And in fact, as I've said before, a pretty comfortable existence here for us. And so perhaps we've settled in a little too much. And Peter's going to remind the people that he's talking to, maybe you settled in just a little too much. You're feeling a little too at home. That's why I had David read Hebrews. Listen to what it says in Hebrews 11. We're talking about the faith chapter. The book of movement. The book of pilgrims. They all died in faith without receiving the things they promised. That's a powerful statement. Just chew on that for a minute. In other words, nobody was ever going to find here what was ultimately promised to them. And they saw in the distance. And look at this. Look at this. Welcomed and acknowledged that they were strangers and foreigners on the earth. They never once believed they'd ever find it here in anything or anyone. And those who speak in such a way call themselves exiles. Make it clear they are seeking a homeland. Home. It's what our hearts are all desperately wanting. The writer of Hebrews says, can't find it here. In fact, if they had been thinking of the land that they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. This is a great little statement, and I think particularly applicable right here for Americans who are sort of nostalgic about a, about a country they wish they had again. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, don't go back. Come forward. Don't go backwards. Come forward. Aspire to a better land. Here's your word, land. There it is. You, can, you could translate that country. Some of your texts probably do. Uh, aspire to a better country. What kind? A heavenly one. Like Peter says. Your inheritance kept for you in heaven. Because it's not here. You can, you'll never be fully comfortable. And then listen. For... I could preach until I'm a hundred years old and I won't be able to explain to you what it means for God to say of these people who see themselves as exiles. I am not ashamed to call them my people. Wow. Those are the people I need. Those are the people I want. The people who find their home in me and nothing else. Those are my people. This better country. So I was thinking about that. I thought to myself, you know, for uh, as Christians, American America has sort of been the better country. We certainly treat it as the better country. Uh, but I wonder if that's affected us a little bit to where we don't really need to look further for a better country. And our sights really aren't set in the future hope that Peter has set for us because we've found what we want here. I mean, here in America, you can have your dream home, your dream job, your dream guy or gal. Everything's dreamy. And to some degree, we have made it our greatest hope. And it's evident by the way we fear losing it. And it's not completely unlike, stay with me here, Lot's wife. Who grew so attached to Sodom and Gomorrah. 
And I wonder if it's because she had great friends there. Probably had a yoga class and a gym membership and some people she really knew well and had over on Fridays. And maybe she had a dream job. Who knows? But when she left that town, God said, God said, and he knew to say it, don't look back, because if you look back, you'll reveal your heart faster than anything else. And you know what she turned into? She turned into exactly what the thing that she longed for was made of. She disintegrated because she was made of something that wasn't a living hope. It was perishable. It was stainable. It was impaired. It didn't have. It wasn't home. There's a parable in there for us. She attached her identity to something perishable. So I read this, one of the great books that I read by Smith called Awaiting the King. He talks about this, the whole book's about this topic. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's pretty meaty. I mean, it's, a, it's not a particularly easy read. But uh, he's trying to deal with this cultural political issue uh, for, for churches and um, And so he says about those of us who are sort of longing for this America we used to have. And he writes this. Do do we perhaps protest just a bit too much? It was a great line. Stop me right in my tracks. Does our eagerness to affirm the good of the so-called earthly city come at the expense of longing for the heavenly city? That is a great spiritual question. You could ask it of yourself all year and never need another spiritual question for the rest of the year. Because, he says, I think a newfound evangelical valorization of this world is already showing signs of overemphasis. And he describes it. Don't panic over these two words. Eminentized evangelicalism. That's where we get the word eminent. It means the here and now. We have so made what should be future here and now that, watch, we have an evangelicalism, Christianity for lack of a better word if I could just simplify, who's tempted not only to try to instantiate heaven on earth but also to reduce heaven to earth That's, that is really convicting. Because as God's people, it is very tempting in America to make what is only future, can only be future for us because of the life we've been given. To bring it here. And fight for it somehow as if to lose it is to lose everything. And Peter is saying, you can't lose anything. The writer of Hebrews is saying you can't lose any of it. You know, Kenny Chesney, the great theologian, says everybody wants to go to heaven. But what? Nobody wants to go now. Can I tell you something? That's American. I'm no world traveler. But I've been to enough places where you look into the eyes of Christians and you see people who long for heaven in a way Americans do not. Not only do they long for it, get ready for this, they're happy to die to get there. And they'll stand for Christ under any circumstances. They'll get hacked to death with a machete. Beaten for hours. Watch their families get ripped apart. And never denounce Christ. 
one of the great surprising moments of my summer was reading a book by Parker Palmer called The Company of Strangers. Challenged me to a really, really deep level regarding this topic. He spoke of the golden age of America as sort of the land that we're describing here in Hebrews. And he says, we have this golden age of memory. And he writes, he says, uh, it's partly fiction to begin with, even if it were not and ever could be constructed, reconstructed. But he says, in regard to what the writer of Hebrews is saying here as it relates to us as Americans, if we seek to return to the past, the writer is telling us, the writer of Hebrews, that that's a sign that we lack faith. Whether, this, whether that past is fantasy or fact, if we, if we seek to return to the golden age of memory where we feel safe and at home, we will reveal our distrust of the God who calls us forward. We don't go backwards. And we're not trying to protect anything here. We know what we have in the future, and we're headed toward it. Hillside, that's not how American Christians tend to live. In fact, the writer suggests, this is even stronger, the desire to feel at home is a sign of apostasy. That's what the book of Hebrews is about. It's the quickest way to abandon your faith. Find something else to attach to. He says it's a sign of apostasy apostasy toward the God who always beckons us toward new lands, new life, and into all the risks of sojourning on earth. That's who we're called. We're called that way. Don't put your stakes down too deep. Part of the desire to save America is we don't want to lose our home. We are exiles and pilgrims. And God says, you're not home. And he's pulling us forward. We can never settle. So for Peter, hope is home. It's it's our ultimate home. Where all the longings of your heart that you have every day that keep you up at night And one of the great benefits of being a believer and having the life given to you is you know why you're never satisfied here. You know why you never feel home. When when you don't know Christ, you don't know why. You don't feel home here. But we know why we wake up every day and have to look that way because we're never going to find it here. We know that. See, home... You know, home is, home is where you feel safe, the safest. It's uh, where your deepest relationships are. The most intimate ones. Um, Where you rest and find comfort after days of being out. where you have set up your life so that you can do life. I was thinking about this. Uh, I can get up in my home in the middle of the night, pee and have a cup of coffee before a light ever turns on and before my eyes ever open because I know where everything is. I can do it in the dark. Can't you? Right now, if you put me in your house, I'd die with my eyes closed. I'd be dead. But in my house... I can park and literally get anywhere I want to with my eyes closed. That's because you've set up the home and lived it so much. That's what home is. It's set up the way you like it, the way you know it. The P 
Peter is saying, this world's not set up for you. You can't close your eyes. You got to keep them open. You got to keep looking. You got to keep your head on a swivel. You can't walk around like you own the place. You're in exile. You can't walk around like you totally belong. You're not home. And it can never be a home. So we shouldn't be surprised and threatened. We don't have to employ the the tools and tactics of the world for political gain or influence with the hope of controlling or toppling an empire. That's certainly Paul or Peter's message to the churches there in Asia. Because Peter's going to say, you've already gained something. You cannot put a price tag on. It's imperishable. It's unstainable. Unimpaired. You've already got it. So next week, Peter's really going to help us with this sort of a view of suffering. And I think as he, as he goes right from this into suffering as if to say, you guys need to be prepared, and I'll be honest, I'm not. If you wonder, maybe you do. What's he doing all week thinking all this stuff up? Wonder if he wonder if he cares. Let me just tell you, all your anxiety, all your questions, all your angst, the idea of having to suffer for my faith, they overwhelm me, those things. Just like they do you. But we have to face this truth that we're not home. So the question is, where's your hope? What's home to you? Because Peter says (laughs) to this group, socially rejected, I need you to know you you have a home. Outside of this place. There's a little ditty, I guess you could call it, a little story about the lumberjack. Maybe you've heard this. So the lumberjack goes into a forest and he's going to take a tree down. And when he's right, about to take it down, he looks up and notices there's a, there's a nest up there with a, little, a bird and some babies. And so uh, he's like, I can't take that tree down. And so he, you know, takes the butt of his axe and, and bangs on the bottom of the tree to irritate the bird enough that he'll fly away. And eventually the bird gets the message and, you know, takes his little, little dealie to the, to the next tree. And it isn't long before the lumberjack gets to that tree because it's got to come down too. And he starts banging on the bottom of that tree. And the bird's like, this, this guy's what kind of a pain in the neck is this guy. It happens a couple of times and pretty soon the bird's like, see, He's persecuting me. (laughs) Eventually the bird, after who knows how many trees, finally just takes its nest and flies to to a high rock and plants there. And it's just a little reminder that every tree in this world is coming down. None of them will last. And if you nest there, You're doomed. You need to find a rock. Peter is saying Christ is that rock. It's the only place you'll be safe. What Peter will go on to say in chapter 1 that we may not actually have time to look at is that Your salvation has been purchased by something that gold and silver can't buy, but the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Something invaluable. Something invaluable was paid to give you something invaluable. And in order for that to happen, Peter will suggest 
that he left his home. He left home where he was safe, where he had intimate relationships, where it was set up perfectly the way he likes it. And he came here to give his life on a cross for us. He became an exile so that we could make our own way toward the kingdom and the home he has prepared for us. So where's your hope? If you feel the place of your hope being shaken or taken, then it's not in the right place. And it may very well be that God, through what's happening in our world right now, has the butt of the axe and he's banging on the bottom of the tree so that you'll say, ooh, I don't know that I should be hoping in this. And Peter will say, better fly to Jesus. You better fly to that rock. You better fly to Jesus. Father, we come into your presence. We, we're just all convicted beyond comprehension. Between the forces at work in the world, the culture, scripture, and all of it is all, is all hitting us at a place deep in our heart and soul that, that many of us have not been hit in a while. And we're a little bit uh, overwhelmed by it. We thank you for your word that it's giving us guidance. I wonder if we feel like exiles or are we, way, are we feeling way too at home here? We need to solve that in our hearts today, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.